This is Ambie Burfoot welcoming you to the latest episode of our podcast, Running State of the Sports. And this is George Hirsch, your co-host at Running State of the Sport. In every episode, we talk to the smartest, most informed, most influential, and sometimes fastest runners on the planet. This week, we have a great conversation with Kevin Hansen, who's one of the brothers behind the well-known Hansen's Brooks running team out of Michigan. They'll be taking a real strong team of marathoners to the trials in February. And that's one of the main reasons we wanted to speak with Kevin. And that team's been together, Amby, for two decades now and produced many resounding successes, particularly in the marathon. The team's two most widely known runners, I would say, are Brian Sell and Des Linden, both who made Olympic teams. And of course, Des also won the 2018 Boston Marathon. But before we speak with Kevin, Amby and I want to discuss some of the biggest recent news stories in the running world. Amby, what have you been looking at this this week? Well, I'm still really attracted to the story of Dathan Ritzenhine and his family of runners, by which I mean his daughter, Addison, who just won the Nike cross-country nationals as a sophomore. Dathan twice won footlocker as a junior and a senior, but she won an equivalent race as, as a sophomore. They did a nice podcast with Diestat, and I thought, well, let's listen to this and see what uh, kinds of instruction Dathan has been given giving his daughter to make her such a great runner. And the answer was, and this is quite wonderful, essentially hands off. He says her high school coaches are terrific. And basically, I don't even know what she's doing until the day after when I've seen it or find out from her. So it was quite refreshing that he w- he and his wife were hands off with their daughter, Addison, and that she was uh, succeeding tremendously just by having fun with her teammates. And then a week later, the whole family was out in Honolulu for all the running events there. And it looks like Dathan ran a 438 uh, in the mile. And his son, who's just 14, ran a 504, which is pretty terrific. On the marathon scene, C.J. Albertson just continues to astound. A little more than a week ago, he won the California International Marathon in a 211.10. Now he, 211.09, excuse me, a week later he goes to Mexico and runs a race there, another marathon, in 211.10, one second slower. Well, why does he do this? What's significant about it? It turns out that the CIM course is a downhill course and is therefore not eligible for world athletics ranking as everyone tries to qualify for the Paris Olympics. But the, team, the, the marathon course in Mexico was flat and eligible, and C.J. Albertson has now hit the Paris qualifying time, which means very likely that if he finishes in the top three in Orlando in the marathon trials, he could be on the team going to Paris. Yeah, well, good for C.J., two marathons back-to-back a week apart. That's uh, you got to take your hat off to that one. Yeah, I uh, uh, wanted to mention another young uh, running star, Caitlin Tui, who announced this past week uh, that she's turning pro and will not be 
finishing out her eligibility at North Carolina State. And as we all know, she's had an absolutely sensational career there. And in a really good interview with Chris Chavez, she talked about her reasoning as to why she's doing it and how she's going to go about it. She's going to stay with her coach in Raleigh, Lori Hennis, whom she's developed a very close relationship with. And at the same time, she's going to begin to do some altitude training in Flagstaff, uh, which will be interesting. She's not done that before. And this gives her a chance, not having to run at the collegiate level, to really focus on next year's Olympic trials, where I think she could become a serious contender at 5,000 meters. Uh, she's shown that she's got the, the speed and uh, really focusing now and not having to, you know, perform and score points, uh, meet after meet, meet for North Carolina State, I think really uh, opens that door to her. And uh, it's going to be fun to watch Caitlin Tuohy going forward. It's not only going to be fun, there's going to be a whole lot of us rooting for her because she's been in the spotlight for many years now with her terrific high school career in New York State. And every step of the way, she's carried herself and her attitude towards the sport and the importance of her teammates right at the front of her running. And that, of course, has made a lot of us big, big fans. And so that's the biggest running news, as George and I see it here, from running State of the Sports. Running State of the Sport is brought to you by MarathonHandbook.com and RunLongRunHealthy.com. Marathon Handbook is the world's leading marathon website with a special focus on trustworthy running information and free runner-tested training plans for all ability levels. Run Long, Run Healthy is Ambie's weekly newsletter with the newest, most scientific, and most useful training advice for runners. Now let's turn to our guest this week, Kevin Hansen of the well-known Hansen Brooks running team from Michigan. Kevin and his team are headed to Orlando because there happens to be a little race there at the beginning of February, the Marathon Trials. They've had Olympians in the past on that team, and we'll talk about that. And they're certainly hoping for another one this year or next year, I should say. Kevin, it's great to have you with us here on the podcast running State of the Sports. Thank you, uh, both Amby and George, for having me. Um, it's an honor to be with uh, people that um, I respect and see as legends in the sport, truthfully. So, Kevin, uh, why don't you begin by telling us and our listeners a little bit about you, your bio, um, you know, how old are you, where are you living now, uh, where did you grow up, your family, career, just give us a little sense of that. Yep. I was uh, uh, born and raised in Michigan and never ventured too far from there. I uh, went to school as a freshman at Central Michigan University and then transferred to Oakland University, um, which was a D2 school then. It's a D2 D1 school now. Um, and that's where I graduated from with an English major 
and uh, and with plans of teaching secondary ed um, and uh, and uh, coaching at the high school level. And so um, I started. Uh, um, oh, and as a runner myself, I uh, I have real modest times and things. Nothing that's worth bragging about. Um, um, I ran. Um, uh, 232 in the marathon. I've run 3021 for 10K. I've run 1446 for 5K. I've ran 6835 for a half marathon. And so, uh, um, but those were all many moons ago. And uh, that's not really what we're here to talk about. No, but the difference between you and me is if I had those times, I'd be bragging about them. <laughs> they're pretty, you know, they're, they're um, pretty decent. So good. I always tell people I, I'm not good enough to make my own team. So yeah, that I, uh, that I bet is true. How yeah. about uh, retail running? You said you were going to be a uh, an English teacher, or you thought you were, and then somehow you got into the retail scene. Again, we don't know, need to know the whole history, but how did that happen? Uh, starting running shops in Michigan. I, I was I was teaching and coaching. I coached. I still continued to coach after we opened the stores. Um, but I coached high school girls for 34 years um, and uh, retired in 2016 from that. Um, I was uh, teaching before we opened the stores, but we opened the stores um, so soon that I don't really have any teaching, big teaching memories. But I started uh, um, uh, other than I consider coaching teaching. So uh, so uh, that's really my only aspect with there. But we opened the stores in 1991. So um so we've been at it for, you know, over 30 years now. So it's, uh, but I always joke and tell people that, um, you know, there's, there's people that are businessmen that are involved in, with owning running stores. And then there's runners that are involved with the business side. And we definitely come from the runner side and the passion side of all of that. So you mentioned, um, uh, coaching high school girls. Uh, was your daughter uh, one of them? I know she stayed in the world of running and she's working for <laughs> Howie Mavleski right now, whom Andy yes. and I had a fabulous uh, podcast with Howie uh, oh, some weeks ago, and he was, he was really terrific. Yeah. I mentioned to Samantha that I was uh, going to be speaking with you guys, and she said, "Oh, how we just did that podcast." <laughs> I said, "Oh, awesome!" So, um, so I, I was aware that that happened. Um, I wasn't until like yesterday or the day before when I was talking to Samantha about this. Yes, um, I was going to retire from uh, because I was full board into coaching um, the professional athletes, and I was going to retire at thirty years. And my daughter said dad, are you kidding me? Like, um, that was the year, the next year would be the year she'd be a freshman. And so I was like, um, I'm intense as a coach. I'm intense in everything I do. And so, um, I wasn't sure I wanted to coach my own kid. I've seen people screwed up too many times. And so, uh, um, I was, we reluctantly had our conversation that Samantha, yes, I will coach you. Well, I will stick around and coach high school for another four years. As long as no matter what happens at practice, what happens at a meet, no matter what's said or what, how you feel, that I'm the first hug. And it, the day that I'm not the first hug is the day I'm done coaching you. And so uh, um, I took my dad role far more important than I did my coaching role. And so that was important to me. Well, there's nothing much more important than uh, hugs. Be before we 
ask you about the beginning of the Hanson Brooks running team. There's at least another half to the story, a brother named Keith. Tell us a little about him and, and what various roles do the two of you play? I'll tell you, um, Keith's, Keith's start in the sport was much more interesting than mine. Um, when I was getting ready to go to college my freshman year, um, I was going to be a walk-on at that time. And the college coach what was not really receptive to having walk-ons. And in high school, we were running 45, 50 miles a week. And he said to me, if you want to be, if you want to be any part of this team, you better be prepared to run 70 miles the day you walk in here and 70 miles a week. And I said, wow, that seemed like a lot. A couple of buddies of mine were already in college. They came back. I said, how much you guys running? How much? Ah, between 70 and 80 miles a week. It's a different time. This was 1978. And so, um, mileage was, nobody was afraid of mileage then. And so, um, so, uh, my 13 year old brother um, my buddies and I decided, well, we'll just go out and run 10 miles every day. And that's all we did. We ran 10 miles every day all summer. Some days we'd pick it up a little bit at the end. Um, most days we'd pick it up a little bit at the end. So it became kind of a uh, a fartlet kind of run. And my 13-year-old brother said, can I run with you guys? We said, Keith, we're going 10 miles. And he would fall off halfway between. And I had no idea what was going on back there, You know, whether he was walking or picking daisies or what he was doing. And at the end of the summer, he said, um, I'm going to go run the Bobby Krim race. And I said, Keith, that's 10 miles. He goes, yeah, well, that's what we run every day. And I was thinking, do you? You know, I didn't even know for sure. And he, he ran 65. Nice. <laughs> um, and I go, Keith, that's super impressive. Now there's some 13 year olds that are shaving and there's other 13 year olds that look like they're eight years old. And my brother and I were both 13 year olds that looked like we were eight when we were 13. And Keith said, I was talking to people here, and everybody seems to be running the free press marathon this year. And I'm like, what? I go, what, what do you know about the marathon? Knowing that I'm his only source of information, I pretty much doubled my mileage over the summer. And he said, well, he goes, I was talking to people. I think I'm just going to run what I have been and just run longer on the weekends. And he ran 320.01 in the marathon as a 13-year-old. And as a 14-year-old, broke three hours in the marathon at Maryland Marathon um, before he ever started high school. So, so um, I say that, and he still loves running now. So for all of those people that, you know, um, there wasn't a parent pushing him. There wasn't uh, anything like that. It was just all him. But a much more interesting start in the sport than myself. Kevin, can you tell us, um, you were in business to sell running shoes and a little bit of apparel in the 1990s. And then out of somewhere comes this idea of a running team, the Hanson Brooks running team. I don't know if that actually sells shoes for you, but I suspect it wasn't the reason you started the team. Why did you? It it, it does not sell <laughs> shoes bad. for us. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's kind of funny because other stores will say to you, talk to us about it. Like, Hey, we think we'd like to do this. Can you explain the business model here? <laughs> and, and, and it's like, um, basically what had happened is we did not grow up with money, Keith and I. And so we started the store and around 95, 96, 97, it was the doldrums in American distance running. We didn't have Amby Burfoot winning, um, Boston marathons anymore. We didn't have Bill Rogers or, or Frank Shorter or Greg Meyer or Benji Durden or any of those people. It was really a dull, dull time for Americans. And 
Greg Meyer became a big influence of with me, with Keith and I talking to him about, okay, we believe in group training. And the reason I say that is, you know, if you look at the best places in the world and you say, well, obviously the East African countries and they do group training for a different reason. They do it because they need to pool their resources. It's a, it's a financial reason to do it. But you say, what is obviously the third best distance behind um, Ethiopia and Kenya or Kenya and Ethiopia? I'm not numbering them. And it's obviously Japan. And you go, well, wait a minute. Japan believes in group training as well. And we thought all of the successes of the United States back in that time were when pockets of people were going to train in Boston or Boulder or all of those kind of uh, where, and we said, how can we duplicate that? And we, we decided that we could do it with the stores. So we basically bought a house and provided free housing, um, free equipment, uh, free, and this was before Brooks or anything, free health insurance and uh, um, free travel. And we just said, I don't care about having a boat. So business has been good. Let's spend our money here. This will be our passion. And so it started with something as simple as that idea of how can we duplicate what had been done before? So it started with that. And, uh, and then it just kind of grew. And then in, in 2003, um, after us doing it for four years or so, several shoe companies had come to us and said, Hey, we'd like to partner with you on this. How can we do this? And, um, but, Almost all of them wanted to do it where they would provide equipment. And Keith and I, who were spending basically a quarter million dollars a year on the program, and they would give us $30,000 of equipment, call us partners. We said, well, I don't think that's, you know, and, and without being rude, thanks, but no thanks kind of thing. And then um, there was an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal about us. And um, in, in, uh, front page of the Wall Street Journal and all of a sudden, now all of the money people at the shoe company started paying attention. And pretty much everybody started courting us then and saying, hey, we'll relieve you of the pressures that you you have right now of what you're spending and so on and so forth. Keith and I never felt like that was pressures. We thought that was like something that we wanted to do. It's, we, we were happy to spend our, our money that way. So basically, um, long story short, um, we ended up going with Brooks, um, who... Uh, who, uh, and under the assumption that they would like match the amount of money that we are spending. And it started that way for about the first five or six years. But now, um, Keith and I still continue to spend that money every year because we think it's part of our way of giving to uh, the sport. But truthfully, Brooke spends three times that or so every year on us now. So it's, uh, they just keep escalating their, we don't, they just keep escalating what they have paid for it. So, Tell us a little more about the team and the dynamic. How many how many runners do you have? Uh, give us a little sense of what we currently have. We currently have twenty athletes. Um, Thirteen of them will be running in the Olympic trials in the marathon. Um, eight of them are women, and five are men. Um, this time around, it's that's always varied from year to year. Um, they are uh, uh, there are. Other athletes that are uh, um, not have not yet attempted the marathon or um, that are uh, part of the team. Those are the people I'm here with right now. That we're going to go run club cross together and um, have those have that experience. But you're uh, in Florida now. But, um, 
I okay. am. We're in Florida right now. Um, uh, so we're, uh, we're going to, uh, we're down here. Just, uh, we went from the, the running event in Austin where they had a team event there in cross country and then came over here. Um, and we, I really love club cross country. I think it's one of the few times that pro teams can kind of do things as a team. So often you can go to an event and you can go to the Boston Marathon and have three or four athletes running, but it doesn't feel like a team like this feels like a team. This is a, the, um, uh, one of the few events that's out there that you can have a team experience. And for everything that we do together training-wise and things day in and day out, it's important for us to uh, to have that team experience. Kevin, you know, we, we do want to get ahead to the upcoming trials and talk about your runners and some of the others and how you're preparing but we would be remiss if we did not note that you have had Olympic success. You've had Brian Sell and Des Linden, who's gone to a couple of Olympics in the marathon. And uh, I hate to ask you to summarize them in 120 seconds. But what was it? <laughs> what was it about Brian Sell and Des Linden that made them tick in your program? First of all, Brian was unique in the sense that Brian really came from the um, from the aspect of uh, I want to outwork everybody else, and um, and uh, it, it created a, a mindset within things that was like um, I, I'm a big believer in trying to work smarter. Brian was just um, I, if somebody's running 150 miles a week, I'm running 160. If somebody's running 160, I'm running 175. It's like, and he legitimately um, just had that mindset. He was just an incredible worker, and it really kind of set a tone for our group. Um, I, I tell stories about Brian all the time. There's things that with Brian that like are just amazing. Like he is such a worker. Like if he he had downtime between after a marathon, two weeks, he was like you know, mad at me for making him take downtime. He built a deck at the house during that time. I mean, he would, he would, at one of our houses that we had, you know, he would build, I mean, he would do everything um, uh, to keep himself busy and keep working. Brian's just the ultimate workhorse. Um, Des is, uh, Des is, um, I think, um, and I think going still, even in this trials, Des has gone, both of them came from, Brian qualified for nationals, and track, but Brian was lapped his uh, his uh, in the ten thousand by Ryan Shea um, in uh, uh, in his uh, NCAA uh, experience on the track. Um, Des never qualified for an NCAA um, meet other than as a team in cross country. Um, Des had run sixteen, seventeen, five uh, k, and nothing even even worse equally in the ten k where she's only ran it at like conference meets and things for points and stuff. So, but Des is, uh, Des is, I still think the smartest person in the room when they get out there on the course. If, if you see everyone running on one side of the road and Des on the other, it's because Des is running the tangent. She didn't screw up. I promise you that. And the same kind of things with Des, sometimes you'll see where they go, oh, how come Des keeps falling off the back? And I'm like, she's not. She's running even. Everybody else is yo-yoing from the front. Okay, it's like so. It's uh, there's things like that that does just innately has learned about the marathon that makes her, I think, better than um, 
she gets to a she can get to 20 miles more efficiently than the people she's running with well two olympics and a boston marathon championship uh is really uh it proves your point for sure and and let me ask you this if you if you're willing to chat about it uh like often runners switch teams switch coaches she talked about it in her book and she left you what was your take on it that that's probably it gets must be personal it can't be so easy yeah you know i mean yes and no i mean it was um i think i think she was realistic she knew our expectations um and uh i think honestly that does um was at a point where she didn't need the benefits of what the program provides and she honestly had so many things on her plate that kept her busy that she couldn't pro- couldn't be the teammate that she that others were um, and things. And I, I think she was just being honest with everyone. Kevin, you you've become kind of a resident expert of winter training in Orlando, Florida. You said to us earlier, you've taken the team there for 20 years. You probably never imagined that the Olympic marathon trials were going to be in Orlando, Florida. But what I had my fingers crossed and was praying. That's for sure. <laughs> I was were, hoping you were rooting for them through all the controversy. So I sure was. I sure was. <laughs> so how, how does how does the Orlando environment uh, potentially affect the trials? I mean, we know it could be cool. It could be warm. It could be humid. Yeah, it's a. It's a what have you learned? It's a strange. It's a February is a strange month. I mean, we see that. I mean, we sometimes would make decisions. Well, we often make decisions because we have nothing else on our plate when we're down here. So we will sometimes look and say, OK, we're not running until we're we're, we're, we're going to run at nine tomorrow. And then the f- next day we're going to run at seven tomorrow, just depending on how how things uh, uh, change weather wise and so on and so forth. But um, but, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's Florida. It's um, and it's kind of hard to describe to people that aren't down here all the time because, you know, um, like I always say, my, my sister lived in Florida for a period and she'd come back to Michigan and have a winter coat on when it was 55 degrees because, you know, it's uh, so you can't really ask people that are down here in Florida because they'll all tell you, oh, no, that's our coolest month. But cool to them is different than cool to somebody from the Midwest or Northeast or, you know, so other areas of the country just because um, of what they're accustomed to. You know, your team, I I think. Could, could be called a, a blue collar team in in many ways. You know, you're not your guys are from Michigan. You know, you're not in Boulder and Flagstaff and Oregon, and probably not getting a crack at a lot of those NCAA champions, as you just said when you talked about Brian and Des, uh, two people that became Olympians in your program. That they weren't they weren't obviously heavily recruited out of college. Um, and how has that affected you? And does it, does it bother you in any way? Or do you kind of, does it incentivize you? How do you, how do you feel about that? I think that we're getting people that, and Des and Brian both fall into this category. They both knew that there was more there when they got out of college. And although the doors may not have been open for them to be, um, get the immediate contract that other people got and stuff. It kind of gave them that little grit. It gave them that little edge, that little, I've got something to prove kind of thing. 
and I enjoy working with those athletes. I enjoy working with the athlete that um, uh, has something to prove. Uh, not, not that every athlete doesn't have something to prove, but I just think that they have like, I'm going to prove to these people that I'm as good as them. And I think that that's, um, I think that's a quality that's uh, hard to teach people. It's only something that happens because of, of life experiences prior. And I, I like working with those athletes. Those are the athletes I'd prefer to work with than working with an NCAA champion. The other thing that happens with these athletes is they tend to be more appreciative. They tend to, uh, uh, you know, they tend to really appreciate things more. And um, uh, you, you see, we see, we have very few people in our program that I would call entitled. Um, we just, that's not a word that we really comes with our group. And so I like that. So there has been so much controversy over the Orlando Marathon trials. As, as we speak right now, it sounds like the start time has been switched to about 10 a.m. It sometimes sounds like there's not an actual contract. It sounds like the athletes, and that means their coaches, managers, don't know what the prize situation is, the prize purse money. It, we're not even sure how they're going to pick the three men on who go, hopefully, to Paris. How do you view all this stuff? Is it is it just just what you have to deal with and get out and train tomorrow morning, or is it really bothersome because it seems not intelligent and coherent? Um, I, I don't find it bothersome. I really don't. I do not find um, for me um, if I knew every single answer to what the people what people would like to know right now. It would not change one thing in how I how we prepared. It wouldn't change one thing in how I would handle tomorrow or the week after or the week after that. Um, I know that it can be warm here at eight o'clock. It could be warm here at ten o'clock. It could be warm here at noon. Um, I know that, and we're going to prepare as if it is. Um, I like the fact that um, that um, additional elements are there. I think that always plays to our advantage. Um, and what I mean by that is if it's hot, if it's cold, if it's hilly, if it's almost anything, um, I enjoy preparing for the Boston Marathon and the New York City Marathons for, because you're preparing for different courses. You know, you're not preparing. Almost every person that I've ever coached, we debut at Chicago because we're preparing for the distance and not the course at that time. But I really enjoy the um, additional parts of the course that you have to train for and things. Um, and after their debut, and I feel like they've got that under their con hands, now we can we can take the next step. Your uh, your runner, Zach Panning, is getting some talk as a, as a dark horse contender. And uh, do you see him in, in the mix here? Uh, not only do I see him in the mix, I do not see him as a dark horse. Okay. So, <laughs> I, I, honestly, I'm dead serious when I say that. Um, there were 39 athletes that had run under 208 um, in, in Budapest this year. 39. Um, Zach finished 13th on that day, has now become 12th because there was a uh, positive drug test by one of the athletes in front of him. But uh, he is, uh, um, that means he beat that many people that, were, that had run 208 previously. Um, and so people are so glued to time so often that they don't really pay attention to what's going on and who you're beating and so on and so forth. But that's, uh, and 
Also, Zach had the advantage that day of it being um, uh, in the mid-70s, almost reaching 80 before the finish line that day. Um, and so, um, do I want it warm in uh, Orlando? Hell yeah. <laughs> Kevin, I've got a very basic question for you, and I'll keep it simple. How are the Olympic trials different from every other road race? What factors and mentalities and strategies come into play? Well, you know, the the truth of the matter is you know that it's a preliminary round. In other words, um, for people that are capable of making the team, it's a preliminary round. We often forget, um, and and I, I emphasize this with our athletes all the time, in 2004 when Meb and Dina both medaled in Athens and like um, it was the, the, the breakthrough that I was so proud of because it, it put, it, it showed that Americans are capable of competing on that stage. But the one thing that happened with, with both of them that people often forget, um, I'm sure you guys both know, cause you're historians, neither won the trials. Alan Culpepper won the trials and Colleen Duroc won the trials that year. Neither won the trials. Um, it didn't really play a factor because it's a preliminary round. And so um, it's um, nobody remembers that, you know, Noah Lyles got beat in the semifinals. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, that's what this is. So, it, uh, um, so um, but the flip side of that is I do think that the trials, I'm, I'm one that's on the side of, I don't, I know it makes it hard on the people hosting the event, but I like uh, softer qualifying standards because I think it works towards development. I think, um, and that's what I'm all about, is development of athletes. So I think sometimes that keeps people in the game. And if it keeps them in the game for a little longer, they find out, oh, wait a minute, this female finds out, now I'm flirting with 230. Oh, wait a minute, now I could be a 225 person, and so on and so forth. Um uh, I just, I think it, I think that, uh, um, that we can use it for both. I don't think it has to be just one or the other, although it's there to select the team. I think it can be a developmental piece as well. Kevin, a question about shoes, just a quickie. You're all going to be wearing Brooks shoes here. And I guess the question is, do you, and importantly, your athletes feel that the Brooks shoes now, um, put them at the same level in the same position as those wearing the Nike and Adidas and New Balance, the, the super shoes. I do. I do. I feel like we're in, I I feel like, um, our, we have a a great, you know, I mean, (laughs) it's all, it's so funny when we started the business in 1991, 60% of all shoes that came, that went out of our store were sold by Nike. I mean, they, everybody, 60% of them, but somehow or another, now the leading brand is Brooks um, within running specialty. And if you, if you figure that out, it's because people there, their designers, the shoe people know what they're doing. And so Nike was definitely first to the table with this, no doubt about it. And they had a head start, but they were also first to the table with training shoes back, like I say, in 1991. And everyone has not only caught them, but passed them up. And I think the same thing will happen in super shoes. So I've got a question about another product that's not a sponsor of yours, so you don't have to say good things about them. It seems to me that super uh, carb consumption with as many gels and drinks and chews as you can possibly stuff in your mouth 
is what a lot of the elite marathoners are doing these days. Am I right about that? Are you trying to get your guys and women to take in more? And does the product matter? Um, yes, the product does matter. And yes, um, we are, uh, we are, uh, we definitely are trying to maximize how much we, uh, what, what the stomach handles, what's the magic number? What's the magic? Um, you know, it's the old, it's the, uh, you know, the, the simplest, uh, advice that you get at, at every single expo, which is don't try something that you haven't done in training. And so basically, um, we work hard on it. We work hard on, um, fluids and how much we can handle and how we handle it and so on and so forth. Um, in training, we, we work with tables so that we're grabbing from a table. We're working with different products. Um, to be honest with you, I don't think anything right now myself equals what Morton's doing. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a step ahead of everybody right now. And, um, uh, maybe others disagree, but for us, that seems to be one that the stomach handles well, that, uh, um, that, uh, and, and services are, our needs as far as what we're trying to accomplish out there. You, you, um, you mentioned that you didn't think Zach was a, a dark horse, uh, but you see him <laughs> clearly as a favorite. Tell us uh, two or three other favorites in both the men's and women's as you look at the field. You're awfully close to it. Obviously, obviously, you know, I mean, I kind of, my problem, like, like the, I obviously consider Connor Mance and, um, and, uh, um, uh, Clayton Young, who both have run the two fastest times as, uh, people that are for sure going to be in the mix. No doubt about it. Um, Scott Fowle has proven that he can run well, um, and should be, um, somebody that's considered, but, um, I, I, I think Galen Rupp is still in the mix. Um, and I know we haven't seen as much from him over the last couple of years, but, he looked great in Chicago, knowing that Chicago was for him was a springboard towards the trials. It was not his, and he has longer term plans than that. And he kind of, I don't think if he's on the starting line, you'll know that he's ready because he doesn't show up any other way. The only marathon I think I've ever seen him show up to that I thought he wasn't ready was when he was dinged up last, not this year, but a year ago for the world championships in the marathon. And I think that was simply because of pressures of having to run because it was in Eugene. And, um, I think, uh, but that's the only time I've ever seen him where he isn't, uh, um, showing up ready to go. Kevin, we're getting towards the end now. You've given us quite a bit of uh, time. We're going to end with two standard questions for us. The, the first, because of the name of this podcast running the state of the sport is to ask you what do you think of the state of the sport of running in the u.s and globally now what's really good what's merely okay and what could really use fixing up i mean honestly for us and if we're talking from the elite point of view elite running wise um the women are a step ahead of the men there's no doubt about that um right now um and I, th I think that, um, I, I, I think that the men are coming. I think that there's, um, there's other people that I didn't even mention on the men's side, like Footsome, I think is in the hunt. I think Bia is in the hunt. I think there's a bunch of people that other people that are not going to surprise me. 
Tesmaman, uh, Tesmaman, I don't know how to pronounce his name, um, who is a new American is, uh, over the last two years. Uh, I think he's going to be in the hunt. I think there's a, a number of people, but I think the men still are a step behind. I think if, uh, we, you know, Zach's 12th place at the world championships was awesome, but, um, but, uh, Lindsay Flanagan was in the top 10 that day, uh, I mean, or, or that, that meet. And so, uh, and nobody even has her on their, their radar for the women. So I think the women are certainly a step ahead of the men. So not just talking elite, but, you know, retail store uh, sales, mass participation. Are the stores back to where they were in 2019? Do you think that the, the whole foundation of running is at a good point? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the one thing that I would like to see better in the sport is something that we've worked on since we started the program. And, um, and that is to do a better job of making the casual runner fans of elite running and let them know that um, the separation that takes place is because runners in general tend to be shy people. It's not that these are people that are like, sometimes people think, uh, Oh, these, that, that, these runners, they don't talk to us. It's like, yeah, I know they don't talk to anybody. You know, it's like, uh, so I'm always trying to do things, um, with us locally. We have a, we're going to have a send off party that I think we're going to have a couple hundred people at, um, next week, Wednesday before, uh, on December 13th for us locally with, and I, I really wish we could do a better job, um, globally of making our heroes, um, household names to everyone that runs. And Kevin, finally, we're, we're going to give you our famous three fairy godmother wishes, and you can't wish for more than three. You only get three. Uh, what would you like to see happen at the marathon trials in February and, and maybe beyond the trials, maybe all the way to Paris? Yeah, I mean, three wishes. Um, I, I want to see the three people be the best three people. I, I don't want there to be, I don't want there to be, um, someone that, uh, has a race that they've never had before. And even though that's, that seems super exciting at the trials, but it usually doesn't amount to that person doing something at the games. And I would like to see, um, I would like to see us, uh, have people vying for a medal at the games for sure. Um, but I would like to see all three athletes that we put on the line at Paris, be competitive. Those are good ones for sure. And and Kevin, we want to thank you so much for joining us at this episode of Running State of the Sport. You told us a lot about your Hanson Brooks running team and gave us some insight on the marathon trials, which we're all looking forward to so much. So thank you for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure um, to talk to both of you. Thank you for your time. George, that was a great conversation with Kevin Hansen. What did you find most interesting and compelling about what he had to say? Yeah, there was a lot in there. Uh, One thing I took away was when we asked him if he felt uh, the Brooks shoes, and of course they're sponsored by Brooks, and Brooks has been hugely supportive to the Hansons. Uh, Jim Weber, the CEO, is... uh, has been a, a great uh, 
backer of theirs and really made a, a difference in their running team. But when I asked him uh, how he and his runners felt about the Brooks shoes, given all the talk and publicity around the Nike super shoe and now the Adidas shoe, the $500 shoe that uh, just set the world record. Um, and he, he didn't hesitate. He felt that uh, the Brooks shoes at this point are absolutely at the same level. And I, I thought that was an important takeaway because I think psychologically, if you're a runner and you're sponsored by a company, Brooks in this case, you don't want to think that you're going to the starting line with even a slight disadvantage over uh, your competitors. So I thought that was, uh, I thought that one was particularly interesting. The other, the other thing is talking to him just, Amby, uh, you know, quickly about his, his take on the trials and uh, who he saw as some of the favorites. And, of course, he got into Connor Mance and Clayton Young and Galen Rupp and the big names. And I asked him if his runner, Zach Panning, was a, was a dark horse. And he dismissed that. And he said he's not a dark horse at all. He said, I put him as is one of the favorites. And again, I, I think, I think it's great for athletes to, to hear that from their coach publicly that, uh, that they put them, you know, right in the, in the, in the top tier going into the trials like this. Well, that's because, uh, I agree with you, of course. And the reason is that every year and every day we learn that the psychology, the mental aspect of running, believing in your shoes, believing in your coaches, believing in your replacement fuel is more important than we ever used to consider it. Back when you and I were trying to knock out marathons, we thought the only thing that mattered was how many 20-mile training runs you did before your race. And now there's so many other things I particularly liked in our conversation right at the beginning, uh, talking to Kevin, we sort of said, you know, Kevin, if you were making a little money on those retail stores of yours, you could have, you know, bought some stocks and bonds or loaded up on mutual funds or something like that. And he said, ah, we're just not the kind of guys who need more boats and need more vacations and stuff like that. We felt that American running was in the doldrums in the late 1990s, and we looked around. We saw that Kenya had good training groups, good teams. We saw that in Japan, which wasn't one of the high-altitude East African countries, they were succeeding in the marathon with teams, and so that's what we wanted to do. So he said they were putting a quarter of a million dollars into the – the team in those early years, and then Brooks came on, and he went so far as to say Brooks is more than uh, doing its part these days. In fact, he said they were spending about three times as much as the Hansons. But that's still a lot of money, and it's been a couple of decades now, so you can't help but liking guys who are making a little money into the sport and then turning it over to the attempt to make U.S. running. Uh, better and more representative at the international level. And that's it for this week's episode of Running State of the Sport. 
We hope you enjoyed joining us as much as we enjoyed sharing the time with you. We'll be back again in two weeks with our next episode. Until then, please tell your friends about running State of the Sport. We'd also appreciate a review at your favorite podcast host, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. And in signing off, here's our hope for the state of your own personal running. Chin up, clear eyes, full heart, keep moving, onward. Onward.